Catskill. Welcome to the local edition news and information keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Coming up tonight, well, there's a art walk is coming up, so we will find out more about art walk in Calicoon. But first, we're going to start where we usually start on a Thursday. That's with our weekly news roundup of the Times, Unions, Hudson Valley Bureau. And for that, we turn to Philip Pantuso, managing editor for Times, Unions, Hudson Valley Bureau. Philip, thank you for joining us again. Good to be with you. So uh, last month, the charter bus had a serious accident on I-84 in uh, Weyanda. Uh It went off the road and rolled down a steep hill, um, and tragically, two people died and many were injured. Um, and now I hear the students and families are taking legal action against the company. What 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 are they uh, what are they looking for? What are they accusing the company of? Two of them are taking action, yes. So in the past couple of days, two uh, two lawsuits have been filed, one in Suffolk County Court and one in Orange County Court by um, the parents of two of the students on behalf of the students who are identified only by their initials because they're minors. And they are essentially seeking damages in court for what they allege to be negligence on behalf of Regency Transportation, which was the charter bus operator, and its driver, whose name has been made public in a couple of the news organizations, but we're not naming her at this juncture because she's not been charged with any kind of crime. Has there been any reaction from the company Regency Transportation? Any comment? Not yet. Um, the, the complaints are similar. Both, both are seeking damages for injuries the students have suffered. One of them also claims that unnamed or unidentified, at least in the complaint, products from the bus and maintenance company should also be held liable. So um, the complaint filed in Suffolk County was filed on October 2nd, um, and it alleges that the student sustained devastating and personal injuries, including multiple fractures, severe head trauma, and other injuries and conditions. Um, and there are also non-physical effects, including mental anguish, um, and that the student has been unable to participate in uh, sort of ordinary school and extracurricular activities. That claims, that complaint claims that the driver's operation of the vehicle was negligent, reckless, and careless, which I should say is absolutely no evidence of that at this juncture. Uh, the state police and the National Transportation Safety Board are still conducting investigations into what exactly happened with the crash. And additionally, this complaint alleges that there was a failure to comply with vehicle traffic law that uh, was in part what caused the crash. Again, you know, maybe the student knows something that, uh, that the public doesn't at this point, but, but we can't actually say that that's, cl- that that's true at this point. Wow. Um, yeah, and then the, this complaint, the one that's filed in um, Suffolk County, also alleges that Regency contributed to the cause of the crash through, quote, negligent, deficient, and careless inspection, maintenance, and repairs of the charter bus, and that the bus maintenance and products companies, which are not identified in the complaints, should also be held liable for the distribution and or manufacturing of these allegedly defective products, including the tires, which um, state police speculated preliminarily might have been the cause of the crash. 
Um, the Orange County complaint, I'll just touch on very briefly, um, doesn't come at the company quite as much. Um, it, you know, it alleges, uh, it alleges um, negligent and wanton acts by the company and its employees for failing to maintain control of the vehicle, but it, it really is focused just on the action of the, of the trip and the crash rather than some, trying to substantiate some kind of pattern of a lack of upkeep or maintenance. Now, as I talked about, I think I talked about this two weeks ago, um, and as I've reported for the Times Union, um, Regency, the bus operator, was on the State Department of Transportation's list of quote-unquote unacceptable operators for having failed five of its 15 mandated semi-annual inspections. Um, but I did confirm that the bus that crashed last month had passed inspection after it was purchased by Regency um, over the summer. And uh, it also passed a random roadside inspection by the Department of Transportation uh, later on in August before the crash actually happened. Um, so as far as the Department of Transportation was concerned, it seems like this bus was, uh, was okay to operate. And that unacceptable operators list um, doesn't prevent the company or the bus operator from conducting its business in general. All it does is that the buses, all it requires is that the buses that fail those inspections be immediately removed from service, which the Department of Transportation told me what happened is what happened. So, you know, we'll see. It, to me, these lawsuits seem like, um, well, for one, not surprising. The, the Suffolk County one that um, kind of alleges a longer pattern of behavior seems like it's just kind of trying to throw a lot of stuff at the wall and see and, and seeing what sticks. I'd be kind of surprised if there was any kind of ruling or outcome in these before we got the uh, aforementioned investigations, which should hopefully be in the coming weeks. Yeah, and and I'm sorry, who's conducting that investigation? So there's two. Um, the state police are doing are doing one, um, and they, they typically conduct investigations on these kinds of accidents. Um, and then the National Transport, Transportation Safety Board is also in Orange County conducting an investigation as well. And I've had sources tell me that the the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board investigation, is really the one to keep an eye out. For. They are the ones with the expertise here. Um, their investigators are uh, traditionally or historically have been much more thorough um, in their in their reporting and in their investigating than the state police have. Uh, probably the best example of this, or the most notable one anyway, is the aftermath of the Spahari limo crash when an NTSB investigation turned up uh, faults that the police did not identify in their investigation. So right. um, I was told by an NTSB spokesperson a couple of weeks ago that uh, we should expect that investigation within 30 days of the crash, which would still put us uh, a couple of weeks away at this point. 
just uh, just coincidentally, as we're talking here, tomorrow is actually the fifth anniversary of that uh, devastating uh, limo crash in in Skahari. Yeah. While we're talking about that, but that's that that did come to mind while you were talking. Just wondering, okay, is somebody going to investigate this to get closer to you know what the reality is? But it sounds like you're saying the state state transportation already looked into this. Well, so state police are conducting their investigation. As far as I know, the State Department of Transportation is not conducting the investigation. I'm sure they're reviewing all the licenses and permits. But I think what will happen is state police will give the results of their investigation to the state DOT. And uh, the state DOT will take whatever action, you know, needs to be it deems necessary in in response to the result of that investigation but up front the state is saying that the the buses that weren't up to snuff were weren't in service that's right yeah 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 that those ones that that failed the semi-annual inspections were taken out of service and that was just part of the kind of regular order of operations so the state dot has this program called the bus safety program and it requires uh, all bus operators of charter buses, uh, like municipal buses, school buses, to allow their, their inspectors to look at all the buses in operation twice a year. That's like the semi-annual inspection, right? They don't always get to all of them. Um, but if you fail more than 25% of those investigations, you go on this unacceptable operators list. Well, Regency, uh, over the over the last calendar year, um, failed five of the 15, you know, that's, so that's 33%. So that's why they were on this list. But right. the, the buses that had those issues are out of service. Okay. Well, thanks for looking at all of that for us and, and giving us a lot more information on that. Um, shifting to another story, I know that uh, Ulster County Executive Jen Metzger has unveiled a budget proposal for 2024. Uh, what, what are some uh, highlights of that? Yeah, so this was revealed on Tuesday uh, by by um, Ulster County Executive Jen Metzger, and um, it is a $413 million spending plan, um, and it's her first since being elected county executive. Um, so that $413 million, it's up $32 million from, from the budget we're currently operating under. Although it does keep property taxes flat, which I'm sure everyone in Ulster County will be happy to hear, um, myself included. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> basically, it raises the um, it raises the non-mandated spending just 1.4 percent, um, and most of that new spending is coming from federal and state grants at no cost to the county. Um, some of it is coming from mandated and required contractual spending. So these are these are agreements that the county legislature would have entered into um, for various services. Most of that being like safety net programs and, and Medicaid. And then per usual, the budget reserves some amount of operating expenditures as a rainy day fund. Uh, this year's budget reserves 20 percent of the operating expenditures as a rainy day fund, which is actually the maximum amount, um, which I, which I thought was, uh, was pretty interesting. It's uh, so it's been a couple of days since she released this, any initial reactions from her supporters or critics? Broadly speaking, I think the, the reaction has been positive. It prioritizes a lot of progressive, um, kind of initiatives and spending that, um, 
are have been key to Mexico's platform as a county executive and before that as a state senator. Um, among those are it would provide long-term funding to a new housing action fund that the county just passed a couple of months ago. Um, this housing action fund basically is, is trying to incentivize development of affordable housing. And the long-term funding is going to come from 25% of the annual motel short-term rental bed tax. It's also going to create a new homeless uh, or housing and homelessness unit, um, which will be staffed by three new positions. These folks will basically be point people to the unhoused population here in Ulster County, helping them find first emergency housing and, lo- and then longer term affordable housing. Uh, it also dedicates another 25% of the annual motel and short-term rental tax to expanding bus services routes. Um, and it has $20 million for improvements to roads and bridges, most notably to try to weatherize those and make them more climate resilient. There are a lot of other climate initiatives in the budget as well. Um, one of them would create another new position in the Department of Public Works that would oversee all kinds of energy and efficient improvements to county-owned buildings. And it would uh, the budget would also allocate $18 million from the, from the county surplus to establish a decarbonization capital reserve fund, which the county could kind of issue out grants um, to support climate responsible investments in county facilities. Um, and then it would also expand the Ulster County Climate Corps, which is this kind of cool new program that Metzger launched uh, earlier this year, which just completed its first season. Um, essentially, it's kind of like a AmeriCorps. It's, it essentially hires interns into the county government, uh, executive branch anyway, to, um, to kind of work on climate projects. Um, some of the things they did, they, this year's interns did were uh, build a climate dashboard for the county website that's going to launch pretty soon and also map out potential locations across the county for a water bottle refilling station and for solar carports. Um, and then lastly, or, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff in here, obviously, it's $450 million, but the last kind of big thing I think I want to hit on is that um, it is also going to provide a lot of funding for some new, um, like, uh, County buildings, basically. So one would be a government operations center in New Paltz. Um, that would be kind of a, a dedicated hotspot for, for climate issues. Um, and then it's also going to invest $3.8 million in the community behavioral health center that the county is building in Kingston. Okay, we only have a minute or two left, but I did want to quick ask you about uh, Muslim students at Monroe Woodbury. They're wondering why their school uh, doesn't give them their own religious holidays off. Is that, is that a story you're looking at? Yeah, so this story we published a couple of days ago, our Maria Montero Silva. Uh, we've gotten an email from, from this high school student named Zayed at Monroe Woodbury, which is in, in Orange County. Um, he is basically leading a push there in the county to get the two Eid holidays off, um, Eid al-Fatir and Eid al-Adha, um, which are, they, they kind of float because they're, they're based on the lunar calendar, but they're usually in, in April and in June. Um, and it seems like this might happen. Um, the school board sets the holidays for the next academic year in January. So we'll all know for sure until January. Um, 
but he has told us that uh, there seems to be some receptiveness, and, and Maria, our reporter, also found this from the school board and from the district. Um, the only thing they'll have to navigate is making sure that they have enough school days <laughs> during the year because um, the state just granted Lunar New Year to all school districts as a holiday as well. So they're going to have to try to sit in um, at least one, maybe both of these around um, all the mandated snow days and, and other, um, you know, state and federal holidays. All right. Well, Philip, I want to thank you for going over all the news that's uh, coming out of the Hudson Valley first. And I look forward to talking to you again next week. Talk to you then. Okay. Remember, Hudson Valley Times Union is online at timesunion.com backslash Hudson Valley. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Art Walk, stay with us. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Radio Catskill and Catskill Brewery present Apple Pie Palooza, Saturday, October 7th at Catskill Brewery in Livingston Manor. Eat pie, win pie, bring home pie. Enter the Apple Pie Baking Contest at WJFFRadio.org. Apple Pie Palooza, 5 to 8, October 7th at Catskill Brewery in Livingston Manor. Benefiting Radio Catskill. Welcome back to the local edition. The Calicoon Art Walk is this weekend. Artists will descend on Calicoon for a day filled with public performances, workshops, video projections, and outdoor art installations. Among the participating artists is Eric Feinblatt from Standing People Together and the Advisory Council of Calicoon Depot Incorporated, who will be showcasing one of their art projects, Tell Me Your Secret. Radio Catskills' Patricio Rabio had a chance to speak to Eric about this project. This is a project that was funded by the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance in, I think it was in the springtime that we received our funding for the project. And there are, I guess there are lots of antecedents to this project. Long time ago in the late seventies and eighties, there was, uh, something called Mr. Sorry. And I think if I remember correctly, it was, um, it was a broadcast on the radio where people would Dial in. No, not broadcasting the radio. There was a number that people would call and leave a message on their answering machines about, on this person's answering machines about things they were sorry for. Um, it was really interesting. I think on the radio show, we would play back these recordings. And since then, there have been a number of things in this vein where people are invited to reveal certain secrets that they may have to the public anonymously in all instances. I thought of this project a little differently. I thought of this more as a community building project. I was really interested just in the titillation of hearing what people's particular secrets were, but the idea that we could share secrets as a community. And the DVAA thought this was, uh, I guess, a positive project. I wanted to align it with the Calicoon Depot because the depot itself, in its history, has been a galvanizing force in the area. Uh, it's linked the towns of the upper Delaware region together. It's been a place, a physical place. It's been a place where people have gathered outside of it. It's kind of been a town square. And I thought that it would be appropriate to have to partner with the depot in the spirit of what the depot has, how it has functioned in its his, history. 
uh, in the region. So it seemed to be a good partnership. So the depot has been sponsoring this. They've been my fiscal sponsor for the project. Um, it involves uh, constructing a big um, display case where we've been displaying the postcards from week to week. Sometimes the postcards have faded because of the sunshine, which in a sense resonates because it's faded memory that we're dealing with, because secrets from long ago and uh, the, the fading of the secrets or the fading of the writing corresponds to that memory that people are trying to recapture. And so we wanted to end it with an actual public performance. So we have five readers who are going to read, interpret, perform uh, selected postcards, and we're going to have a musical accompaniment, improvised musical accompaniment. And this will take place, as you said, on Sunday at 5 o'clock in front of the depot on the stage, which we expect will be finished by then, the new, state, the new stage. And it will be the culminating, I think, performance at our book. You mentioned, you know, Calicoon, the depot being sort of like a town hall. I, I just remember the days when I used to work in Calicoon. And uh, for those who don't know Calicoon, uh, this upper and lower Main Street and the depot is sort of in the middle and separates the two. I always used to pass by the depot and I, I love history. So I've always imagined like what conversations were, were had here in this spot here. Uh, you know, families who were traveling on vacation or even just commuting, uh, back in the day. And I, I see photos of, of crowds of people waiting for the train and just knowing that all this was, was happening. And, and you mentioned those conversations. What were those conversations like? And, uh, People finding out news from, oh, did you hear this? Did you hear that? All happening at the depot. And this sort of like, to me, reminds me of that, of, of bringing back sort of the, the gathering at the depot. Exactly, Patricio. Um, one of the other projects that I'm doing with the depot is an oral history project. And you'll, you'll, we'll talk more about that publicly in the weeks that are coming up. We're going to start to display some of the things and link to the histories that we've been collecting. Uh, but the thing that continues to kind of reverberate in the conversations that I've been having with people is exactly what you're talking about. The depot was a place where you would run into people, you would have conversations about what was going on in their family. It would be uh, serendipitous. Uh, it, people didn't necessarily meet there, but they would, because it was in the center of the town, they would cross in front of the depot or they would go into the depot to take a train to someplace else or to pick up someone who was arriving. And everyone would always, through these conversations with me, have always referred to the conversations that they had with people. So exactly, we're trying, you know, as best we can to, to duplicate that experience. And this was just one, you know, one small project that, um, I guess tries to refer the, to the time when the depot played such a vital role in the in the town's history. And you're asking folks to write secrets on this postcard and, and mail it or put it into the mailbox at the depot. And I and you're gonna have the final presentation on Sunday at the Calicoon Art Walk. And just thinking about how folks are gonna have a sort of a a group cathartic experience of having their secrets read out loud and and. Maybe I'm I'm going miss thinking about this the wrong way, but I'm thinking about someone who's getting something off their chest uh, that they held in for such a long time, and 
and couldn't tell anybody. And now they're sort of letting go on this postcard. Well, you know, there certainly is the gossip part of this. Um, and I'm sure people will make an attempt to identify who wrote what. I don't, you know, having reviewing all the postcards just now, just because we're trying to divide them up amongst the readers and determine who's going to read what. It doesn't, most of the secrets don't lend themselves so much to being identified or even um, eliciting that response from the, you know, from the crowd, like who did this. I, I don't know why it, it doesn't seem to be that. It's not, there's not that curiosity about it. In reading them, I never wondered, there were a couple of them, but just generally I never wondered who wrote that. What was so interesting was that there were, you know, themes um, that kept repeating. And I think that that's, that's what we're looking for. We're, we're trying to open up opportunities for people to see that they share similar experiences, um, no matter what kind of background they come from, whether they've been here for generations or their family have been here for generations, or they've just uh, arrived on the latest kind of high tide of people who have come to the region. So I think that's more what this is about. You know, there's some, you know, there's some private X-rated stuff. And then there are other stuff about hope for the future that a lot of people seem to share. So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a large array, but there's plenty of instances where we have things that feel repetitive in spirit, although maybe not in detail. You know, we just gone through and still going through, you know, really traumatic point in our, our lives that we all experienced, which is the pandemic. And I'm just thinking about, you know, years from now, folks finding this project, reading it, and finding what were people thinking post-pandemic, post the major part of the pandemic. If I remember correctly, there's certainly some references to post-pandemic and having been shut up for so long or shut down, shut up, shut down for so long, and people coming out of that. So that there's, there's, um, there are definitely examples of that, people responding to um, the pandemic and now being able to come out of it and open up to the world and to each other. So there's certainly part of that. But I think it's important, I think, that, you know, creating historical materials are really, really important. I think what happens, I spoke before a little bit about memory and how the faded postcards kind of resembled the memory that may or may not have faded. It's really important that communities maintain a sense of memory of where they've been, of what their history has been about. If they lose that memory, um, they lose some moorings, some connection to the past, to purpose, to elder knowledge. Um, which actually ties into another project that we're doing. It's also been funded by the DVAA, which is explicitly about memory. It's a theater piece that we're doing in cooperation with Hurleyville Performing Arts Center. Um, and that is entirely about memory, about memory loss, what remains when memory is lost, both in a community and interpersonal. So memory is a big issue. As it ties into the history of a place, it becomes, you know, even more and more important in terms of a community's identity. I could definitely relate to that as far as uh, how memory is connected to identity, especially um, when folks who 
may not remember who they are and you really realize that uh, they are not the same person because they don't remember. And those memories that they had sometimes will pop up, sometimes will go away. Um, but uh, the really the memories sort of captures their essence and really captures their who they are. Absolutely. And it's certainly one of the themes in the, I know we're talking about Tell Me Your Secret, the Depot Project. Um, it's certainly one of the themes in this other project that I'm working on, which is called Half-Life, which you will hear more about coming up. Eric, before we go, is there anything else I have not touched on? Do you want folks to know about? I think I've said what I have to say about the project. I think that people who are interested in being involved with the Depot um, can certainly contact them through the calicondepot.org, kundipat.org. Yeah, I think that is their address. And the depot itself um, welcomes kind of all sorts of um, kind of fantastic ideas that you think would tie in with the sense and purpose and history of the depot. So they were very welcoming to me in this project, and I'm sure there are plenty of other people that they would, who have ideas that they would welcome as well. So I urge everyone to reach out to them Absolutely. and propose, you know, different projects. The Calico Art Walk is set to take place this weekend, and Tell Me Your Secret performance is going to happen on Sunday. We were talking to Eric Feinblatt from Standing People Together and the Advisory Council of the Calico Depot. Thank you so much for talking to us, Eric, and letting us know about your project happening this weekend at Calicoon Art Walk. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. For Radio Catskill, I'm Patricio Robayo. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Patricio. And thank you, listener, for listening. Do keep listening. Stay right where you are. We've got the daily and the latest news from NPR. This is Radio Catskill. Support comes from Country House Realty, a boutique Catskills real estate brokerage with a new office in Livingston Manor. Country House Realty. Exceptional spaces in beautiful places. More at CountryHouseRealty.com. From Livingston Manor. Dining, shopping, and the arts at the gateway to the Catskill Park. LivingstonManorNY.com. And from listeners like you who donate at 